Hello and welcome to episode 26 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And I'm Eloise Ross. And this week we're reviewing Alien Covenant, counting down our favourite films set in space. We also have a special exclusive exciting interview with one of the film's cast, Melbourne's own Benjamin Rigby. We'll also take you through the Cultural Capital film diary. But first we're starting here on Earth and more specifically in the resorts and jungles of South America with Amy Schirmer and Goldie Horn and Snatched. <laughs> Here's to nothing getting in the way of our adventure. Emily, I can't go to South America. Wait, wait, what? Also, I'm breaking up with you. When? Like, right now. This is it. You're in the middle of it. You don't want to lose no, this? I don't, no, just stop. Let's run, 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 run away. You poor thing. You look awful. Thank you. We'll get through this. This is a long hug. All right. Okay. Mom, look how fun you were. Pack your bags. We're going to South America. Absolutely not. Everybody knows you need two years to plan a vacation. In 2015, Amy Schumer was breaking ground in her comedy TV series, Amy Schumer Presents, and many doubted her ability to switch over to the cinematic realm. But happily, her film Trainwreck was a colossal hit, and two years later, with her cachet considerably increased, here, or on Mother's Day in the US, comes Snatched. Schumer plays Emily Middleton, an unhappy sales assistant who is fired from her job and loses her boyfriend, and is stuck with a pair of non-refundable tickets to a resort in Ecuador. She convinces her security-conscious mother, Linda, played by Goldie Horn, to take his place. And on the very first night they arrive, Emily meets the very handsome and very attentive James, played by Tom Bateman, who may not be entirely honest with his intentions. Unsurprisingly, hijinks ensue. Anders, did Snatched keep your attention? Um... No, yeah, um, but honestly, I would say it was kind of awful this movie, but not without, <laughs> but not without merit. I think. Um, I think on the one hand, it's really a perfect demonstration of the sort of sorry state of so much Hollywood comedy at the moment. Um, a lot of that is down to the editing, which is just terrible. Um, comedy is timing, as they say, uh, but this movie feels extremely long. However, there's like set pieces and gags that aren't given much room or enough room. And I think a really good example of this is there's this sort of scene where Amy Schumer's character, uh, she, she gets a tapeworm and the village doctor has to like extract this tapeworm. And they extract it by dangling meat in front of her mouth to like lure this parasite out of her mouth. Now, isn't that an amazing setup for a gross out kind of gag? But then it just sort of really barely follows through on it. We sort of see a glimpse of the extraction. She flails around a bit and then the scene ends. Why couldn't they commit to this gag and like follow through? Like it's just perfect gross, um, gross out humor setup. And then the execution is a bit near, um, which I think is a problem that affects a lot of American comedies, you know, commit do it, show us the scene. It would be hilarious. But instead, we sort of laugh a little bit and then the film cuts to the next scene, which unfortunately in this instance is a sort of straight up racist sequence where Schumer's character helps this villagers ferrying water to a well. She gets involved helping out, you know, in, in this sort of um, what, like conveyor belt line of, of women. Uh, all the men, as it's pointed out, um, don't uh, do the hard work in this village. Um, and her mum comes over and is like, oh, it's so nice to see you acting so selflessly. Um, I know that they chose that moment to, yeah. like, have this moment of forgiveness between the two of them. And it's like, exactly. can't you find something that's, like, a little bit less culturally insensitive? <laughs> exactly. And I think it just shows, like, the film is really determined not to think outside of the realm of these two white main characters. So... 
there. Everything about this relationship between a mother and her daughter, it, you know, that's the key to the film. Everything else is really window dressing and it's kind of tired and offensive, um, I thought. There were some plus sides. I really thought it was great to see Goldie Horn on screen again. And I have to say, I really did like Schumer's performance as well. She had a very sort of relatable, warm presence for me, which... Um, I don't know if I... I don't really know what I was expecting from her before. I haven't seen Trainwreck, but I thought... Trainwreck, but I thought she carried the movie, of course. And of course, well, and of course, Joan Cusack and Wanda Sykes are worth mentioning. But no, I think the best joke is in the opening credits, which you don't... You know, that's that's a sad thing to say about a comic. I really like that opening moment. I thought it was very funny. Really funny opening scene. But yeah, maybe just from there, nothing was as pure in terms of its humour after after that point. It kind of showcases Amy Schumer's character's shallowness. And luckily, I think for her and for the movie, there is more to her character than that. But perhaps you're right, Anders, in that this is a way of, you know, the movie kind of trying to, like, lay its ground in being some sort of comedy, you know, whether it's a gross-out comedy or whether it's, like, a full-on comedy about someone just being a horrendous human being. But it always kind of pulls back from that and doesn't want to do it entirely. And maybe that's what its problem is. Yeah. There were a few funny moments. I did laugh quite a lot, and the, our our audience today were having a really good time. Almost everyone had a glass of wine. Which yeah, the was wine really mums in front of us. Yeah, with love, a we're liquid Sunday Arvo, you know, kind of light light movie entertainment. At one point, I went over to Andy because Joan Cusack plays an ex special ops agent who has apparently cut off her tongue to avoid having to be interrogated after leaving, which is. like ridiculous because you know it's meant it's like Amy Schumer's character is like couldn't they just torture her until she writes shit down and Wanda Sykes (laughs) is like yes I guess so you know special ops agents that's not a thing you know you wouldn't have Amy Schumer just like being insensitive and like bringing up all of these (laughs) these ill decisions that other people have made in that way but you it kind of looked like Joan Cusack and I went over to Andy and said is that Joan Cusack and you were like don't know I said I hope so yeah but like what the hell it's Joan Cusack everyone and now she's like in this ridiculous role whole bunch of this movie is super implausible which is a bad complaint to have you know not that it's intending to be you know the most plausible story of all time but that was consistency helps yeah and also how could that like regular joe um brother like just waltz into like a united states government agency in washington a how did he get to washington and B, you couldn't just walk into some office and then, you know, you'd, you'd be put through some pretty tight security. Anyway, it was just ridiculous. And C, anyway. that office would not be turning up in Colombia <laughs> anyway, which the film says at the start of the movie. The guy who works for Homeland Security says, oh, you know, the days of us uh, assembling a crack team of people to run into the jungle are over. Well, they're not over in yeah. later in the movie. I mean, there's all sorts of examples of this. It tries to have its cake and eat it too, which is another thing which I can't really stand. And that's what really annoyed me. You know, they're trying not to be... They they have to go through this big spiel about how, oh, no, Colombia's really safe. We just happen to be in the one really dangerous part of this whole beautiful, wonderful, lovely country. Yeah, it's and just it's only like, dangerous because of one guy. Yeah, because of one guy. <laughs> and once we get rid of him, you know, the problem goes and we can all hang out at the resorts. So it acknowledges that it's got a problem mm. and then blithely dances over that problem 
as if it's, you know, we, we mention it for two seconds and then we forget about it. We've tick, tick that box, move on. Um, what did you think, Ed? Um, yeah, I pretty much agree with both of you. I thought that the film never really took its eye off a middle American audience when it came to actually talking about people from, who weren't from the United States. Uh, I thought the best parts were just where Schumer and Horn got to just be charming and be mm. and have conversations. And as soon as it came to kicking into this ridiculous plot, then it started to totally lose its way. And there was a bit too much plot machinations. There was some terrible pacing, which I think you correctly mm. pointed out as yeah. editing problems towards the beginning. Especially the, like there was a couple of fantastic opening scenes, and I was like, "Great, here we are. It's going to be fun." These guys are right on the same page as them, and then they just dropped the ball. Yeah. It's strange for a comedy, particularly one in 2017, to be so slow towards the beginning. There was a long time between. You know, convincing the mother to inevitably get on the plane and go to Ecuador. It was a very long setup. Yes, but I have to say that I enjoyed the setup. Before I saw this movie, I didn't know it was. You know, I didn't know the premise. I just thought it was about a mother and daughter getting boozed on a holiday. I didn't know that it was them getting kidnapped. And so, with it took so long to get to that point, I was kind of like, okay, this is great. This is just a nice look at this, like, you know odd couple kind of movie thing. Um, and then once it got to the kidnap bit, I, I was like, mm, I don't like this movie Yeah, the anymore. tone shifts were really strange in yeah. this film. Yeah, and so, it, you, you know, either it needed to get there faster or not do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was really strange, strange misjudgment, I think. Because Schumer was in such a position where she could have pretty much picked any any scriptwriter, any project she wanted to. I mean, she was particularly when she started on this in 2016, I think maybe end mm. of 2015, she was, you know, one of the biggest names around. So it's strange that she would make this sort of misjudgment mm. because she's obviously super smart and, and Goldie Horn, you know, is fantastic screen presence. So it seems a strange waste of those talents on a script as shonky as this and so uneven, particularly because it seems to want to be, start being a comedy and then it becomes this, well, actually, you know, at the very, very beginning in the opening frames, where it's set up as this, like, terrorist sort of farce in a way, which is a weird, really weird tone to, to try to aim for in the first place. And then it begins as a comedy and you're like, oh, great. And then there's, like, people getting killed, then there's people getting kidnapped, then there's women getting mistreated, then there's casual racism. <laughs> then the, and it was really strange. And I think, um, even the audience today, there were more laughs during for the trailer for Rough Night than in this film. <laughs> oh, one audience member... We lost their mind, which is beautiful to see. Yeah. She also lost her mind during the movie. Yeah, she did. There was yeah, yeah, there yeah. was yeah. pretty good there's another instance of offensive visualisation of texting oh, on yes. screen yeah. or in, it in, so in this case Facebook yeah. commenting yeah. it was just very crowded and didn't yeah, look like Facebook right. at all And uh, so that's more fodder for the essay that I will write one day. Yeah the screen there was no space in the blocking of the, these shots to put a text message, so they just squashed them in. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I just do want to mention, because I have a soft spot for several things in this one particular scene, and I'm sure it's it's set up to be this way, and we all, all in the audience did. But A, I just can't stand it. When a Van Morrison song comes oh. on, I just I just melt a little bit. I have to yes. just... It's like I'm one over. Um, and there's an instance where uh, a Van Morrison song plays what is it Andy? Cypress Avenue. Cypress Avenue. One of the highlights of the greatest album of all time, Astral Weeks by Van Morrison. It really is one of the greatest albums of all time. And yeah. you sound like uh the dad in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 right now. <laughs> I'm, okay, I'm okay with that. I'm, yeah, look, if this is if this is what I'm saying then I have to stand by it. Okay. But it's it's Amy Schumer and she, you know, and I, also I can't believe it cuz she's meant to be 30 or in her early 30s or something. And I'm sure that, you know, there are certain things that you still find out about your parents, but she finds a photo album of her mother when her mother was young and, like, having fun and, like, looking happy and all of this stuff. And I'm like, that's the kind of thing that you generally realise, like, 
25 maybe I don't know or like a few years earlier than that you know and you might get a little bit more of those moments as you get a bit older but I feel like you know it wouldn't have been that huge of a deal so this is a scene in which she finds a photo album in a cupboard when she's yeah. going to visit her mother and has this revelation about the life yeah that she and she's before. having this she was having this nag of her mother about how she's like doesn't have any personality and all of this stuff and then finds an album and it's a revelation of like I want you to come to Ecuador with me because look, you were cool once and you can be cool again. And I mean, it's a, it's a stupid moment, but Van Morrison plus pics of Goldie Horn can't say no. Mm. My suggestion to people is, and I was texting friends of mine who we all love Goldie Horn like way too much. And so I was <laughs> texting them just after and I was like, guys, I saw Snatch. It's terrible. But I, I said that they should get it on DVD and just fast forward <laughs> most of the latter half of the movie <laughs> but just watch some some bits yeah I was, I was on a different page I thought there was an egregious use of Van Morrison that was very very hard to get away with there were okay. literally thousands of other songs they could have used for that and it would have been possibly more a point like more just better suited I mean what what has Cypress Avenue got to do with this there's no like Irish spirituality going on in this film I mean yeah. I love the song it's phenomenal <laughs> it was very um, I would have gone you... with Laura Nairo or somebody like that yeah right when you mentioned the the fact that she's having this revelation so late, it, it just made me realise that like they're a weirdly arrested development family here. Mm. They're yeah, in true. the sense that like the son is in his forties, is he? He says he's born he's in the seventies, yeah. but he he's like a total shut in recluse, lives at home with mum. Amy Schumer's character is obviously self obsessed. It's just a interesting portrait of a like. Of a mum and her two very emotionally needy thirty-something-year-old children. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. I don't know if it's an interesting portrait. I would say it is a portrait of. Well, I don't think it is, is because I don't think anybody was moved by any poignant, you know, no, connections no, 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 that happened later in the no, film. There was totally. They all no. fall flat. Also, Christopher yeah. Maloney is showing up. That was a bit random. As the guy in the jungle, do you remember? Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Right. Is that Christopher? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was. That was strange. That was. There was a lot of strange things. Oh. <laughs> Oh god. Uh, so anyway, that's snatched. It's currently screening in wide release at the moment around the country, and we say just check something is. else. Yeah. 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 Pass. And now to the cultural capital film diary. This week, the St Kilda Film Festival is being held at the St Kilda Town Hall and in various venues around that area, and that runs until May twenty seventh. This year the festival is showcasing the top 100 Australian short films throughout the week. And events, other events within the festival include Sound Kilda, a celebration of music videos on the 25th of May, Under the Radar, which are films made by filmmakers under 21 on May the 24th, and the Indigenous short film retrospective Short Black, which also runs on the 24th. Before it heads to the Sydney Film Festival, David Stratton's Essential Kurosawa season runs at the ACME from May 26th until June 8th. Uh, this comprises of 10 films, and Stratton is keen for us to see the connections between Kurosawa and directors such as George Lucas and Martin Scorsese. There are some pretty nice new fresh prints, and I don't mean that in a Bel Air kind of sense. Highlights of Astor Theatre. Um, highlights of the Astor Theatre's calendar includes a double bill of Clute and Body Heat on the evening of Thursday the 25th. Jasper Jones is paired with Wake in Fright on Friday the 26th, and that's always worth a look mm. on a big screen. Uh, Robocop and Robocop 2 play on the following Thursday, June the 1st. Zenith is a new video-on-demand platform focused on arthouse films, and they have their launch party on May the 24th at Melbourne's Trades Hall. They'll be showcasing six award-winning short films, and I heard they have a special membership offer for those who are curious enough to see what this is all about. 
Also on May 24th over at Acme is Todd Anderson Kuhnert's documentary A Conversational Exploration of Sonic Practice, in which 31 experimental sound artists talk about their creative processes. This highlights the work of a lot of Melbourneian sound artists and is an ideal way to get your head around a sometimes tricky scene. Also at Acme is a screening of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs on May the 27th, and that's in celebration of the film's 80th anniversary. Eloise, what's happening at Cinematheque? Well, on Wednesday, May 24th also, uh, starting our Robert Mitchum season. Three-week season, six films, um, a lot of them prints, all of them prints, and we are very excited about this. Robert Mitchum is the favourite of a whole bunch of people (laughs) and... His films, you know, are incredible. He's an incredible actor and super, super sexy, super starred, I believe, was how he was referred to at least one time in his life. For good reason. For good reason. That will be a really special season coming up for the next three weeks. Great. And we do have to mention this Wednesday is Night of the Hunter. Oh, oh yes. Cultural, Cultural Capital number, number one. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to see that on the big screen, this Wednesday night at Acme, 7pm. Mm. Bring the popcorn. This is wheat. What are the odds of finding human vegetation this far from Earth? Who planted it? You hear that? What? Nothing. No birds. No animals. Nothing. At almost 80 years of age, director Ridley Scott brings us the latest instalment in the now decade-spanning Alien franchise with intergalactic horror spectacle Alien Covenant. Released five years after Prometheus and set a decade after that film's events, Alien Covenant follows the crew of the good ship Covenant. This ship has been given a colonising mission populated by human couples. Their task is to find a new planet for humanity to settle. Colonisers include people played by Catherine Waterston, Billy Crudup, as an aside, I've always thought he'd make a very good Superman, and (laughs) Danny McBride, who's well known for appearing in the TV show Eastbound and Down. After hearing a distress signal, the captain decides to alter the ship's course and investigate, and as you can probably expect, things go wrong. Central to proceedings is Michael Fassbender, who reprises his role as the android David from Prometheus and he also plays an upgraded model named Walter. Inarguably the film's weirdest and weirdly hottest moment, Fassbender gets up and close and personal with Fassbender as David teaches Walter how to play the recorder. Interspersed with this android-on-android action, Scott litters in references to Shelley's poem Ozymandias, biblical allusions and callbacks to the other movies in the franchise. Eloise... Did you look on this work, ye mighty, and despair? (laughs) Well, I have to say outright for all of our listeners that I have not seen a single Alien film before Alien Covenant. I love the way that this film opens, this really calm vibe, the intelligent but mysteriously intentioned creator, Guy Pearce, and his creation, uh, Michael Fassbender, a figure of perfection, much like the sculpture of David, for whom he names himself. 
Guy Pierce asks, you know, talks to David, his new creation, and David talks about faith, about loyalty, love. And then he starts, it's always a little, little bit kind of uncanny um, because obviously he's, he's so human-like, but he's not human. Um, and this is part of their dialogue. Uh, he starts to, he, he says, his creator is unworthy of his creation. And you sort of think, oh yeah, well, okay, I see where this is going. <laughs> I got a kind of uh, ex machina sense from this opening. Um, you know, that calm sterility of the indoors and the unpredictability of the uninhibited landscape outdoors, those kind of things. And yeah, I don't know whether they were like, you know, direct illusions or whether it's just this is the way that, you know, a lot of these movies kind of generate this sense of, of disquiet. But if we look at the ending of both as well, perhaps we can kind of see maybe the same thing going on. Anyway, that's just a thought. I'm, I might be, you know, proving that I don't know what I'm talking about here, but, you know, right of the Valkyries, rescuing the fallen, for instance, um, and this idea of like the deus ex machina of bringing um, about maybe a god to change a story to like bring in a sense of wonderment or something anyway i'm just like there's a lot of philosophy you know intellectual discussion in this movie and so i'm just throwing around ideas about how i think you know it's it's quite amazing there's quite a lot going on um i mean action wise is is kind of another story but i just i'm really fascinated by this world mm, you guys yeah. and it's my first entry yeah. into it, so maybe well, i'm well, missing well, stuff yeah. but I and it's, it's really great and it's that's very much in keeping with the vibes of Prometheus. And so a lot of people have criti criticised this, I think unfairly actually, mm. as trying to be part Prometheus and part more traditional alien, you know. And I, I don't think... Criticised Covenant. Yeah, so okay. like being stuck between its prequel yeah. and its sequels. But yes. I don't I don't think it... No, I think it works itself um, uh, as its own thing, mm. absolutely. But I think one problem a lot of people had with Prometheus that I didn't at all, but it speaks directly to this, is that it's, he's very interested in these big, weighty, philosophical questions and throwing them up on screen and not resolving them in any particular way because they're, I mean, they're problems that have... They are. They're problems that no one's been able to resolve. So why could Ridley Scott? So I think if you go into this expecting these you know answers to these ginormous questions about mm. meeting your maker and human creation and stuff you're you're going to be disappointed because you're not going to get them but that's not the point of the film so i agree with you i think that's very much what he's interested in doing and we can yeah we can talk about the the mechanics and particularly the action stuff because i find that quite interesting too but first i'd like to hear what you think andy um, well, yes, I think I, I agree mostly with what you're saying. The philosophical ideas kind of dominate what Scott is interested in doing. I think he kind of is slightly clumsy in the way he puts them in the mouths of his protagonists. But there are some really, really interesting ideas there, like the um, AI, the eternal AI dilemma of creating monsters who create monsters or creating monsters that will turn against us. And I think that's brought up about in a really interesting way. I mean, his attention to detail I find is fascinating. I mean, his, as far as mm. world building goes, I think Alien, the Alien world is really underrated. Because people often talk about Star Wars or Star Trek, but there's just as much, if not more, detail going on here. Even if the stories sometimes tend to hit the similar beats. So it seems like Scott was reading a lot of the, the comments beneath the YouTube clip of his last movie, going, you know, what happened to the thrills, what happened to the scares, where's the tension? And so this time around, it seems it's much more edge-of-your-seat edge of sort of moments, I suppose. There's quite a lot of scenes where, the, the ten, where I was surprised how well, effectively, the tension worked. Um, because it seemed to be a lot grittier. Almost, I don't know if it was the throwback to the first Alien that a lot of people are talking about, but there were certainly scenes of people sliding around on blood, running away, you know, this you know, this terror. But also I find that one of the most difficult uh, things to get, get around with Alien is that you pretty much know that everyone's going to die. 
well, almost everybody's going to die. So it's mm. basically the horror house trope of like one by one they get picked off, which you know was brilliant in 1979 apparently. But I think now you're kind of like, okay, so we know this person's expendable. That person's probably going to die. That was a bad decision. Oh, look, there they are. They're getting killed. I think Ridley Scott recognises that to a point. And so when he was making... He's, the whole point of these films, I think, is that the every, all the human characters are expendable. That is mm. the point of it. Mm. It's because the main character in this film is Walter, this android. I, I thought... Well, Walter and David... Um, and their relationship is really the point of the movie, yeah, I've, yeah, I thought. Yeah. Right. And so the human bodies are really just there to birth the life that he has <laughs> created. And the way that it's birthed is through this horrific, um, you know, the chest bursting and, like, the horror that we come to associate with these films. So I think he gets away with that because the human bodies are really just there really uh you know all in service of this central question about androids creating life but did that scare or surprise you well it certainly yeah it does scare me i mean i knew it scares me in this it's scary in the sense that a it's telling me that as a human being i don't matter but b it's on that on some very fundamental level it is scary but b i, I think it's scary because it's just it's the way that the these death scenes are crafted is quite interesting and shocking and ed the editing is quite scary like i thought the frenzied it was such a i thought it was such a wonderful building of tension and frenzy when like everything starts to go wrong about maybe halfway through the film and then it all goes wrong very very quickly yeah. and then it sort of stops restart the film sort of uh, you know all of that resolves itself and then you restart with yeah but that whole sort of second act climax i thought was really well well made was the highlight of the film on that level yeah i, thought, I agree I thought. yeah Hmm. Yeah. Um, I do love the way that this film brings in popular culture. That. Sorry? Oh, I was just saying it's an interesting point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah um, Shelley Byron, Phantom of the Opera, John Denver, all these people kind of get... John Denver, well, yeah. In the last... In Prometheus had Stephen Stills turning up. So when when Idris Elba turns up and he's playing Stephen Stills on a squeeze box in Prometheus, mm. I was like, wow, that's, that came from left field. And we get that again here with John Denver. Mm. The Man Who Broke the Bank in Monte Carlo, that tune, I feel like it was when David was teaching Walter to play the the pan flute. But it may have been at another moment. Recorder, I think, or flute. Um, I think it's a recorder. It's not a I think pan it is a recorder. Yeah. Oh, pan pipe? I don't know. That's, I think, no, what it's I... it's a recorder. I think it's a recorder, yeah. yeah. But recorders are such hideous instruments. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it, it's like, very just more poetic than a yeah, recorder? Yeah, it is, yeah. but no, it's... Which, well, <laughs> I wanted to say bamboo flute, but I couldn't remember. No, I'm pretty sure it's a recorder. Um, but, you know, the reference to these, and I, I just looked up the lyrics for The Man Who Broke the Bank to Monte Carlo, in Monte Carlo, because I wanted to, I was so curious about it, and I just, these lines, I stay indoors till after lunch, then on my daily walk to the great triumphal arch is one grand triumphal march, observed by each observer with the keenness of a hawk. I don't know, I just kind of felt that you could use those words to, in some ways, perhaps interpret some behaviour going on in... Yeah, uh, I'm sure that's, that's interesting. That's yeah. the sort of thing that Scott probably would have... Yeah, and then I, I got uh, these uh, words to uh, Ozymandias, look on my works, you might in despair, which is quoted, and very interestingly misremembered by David as being written by Byron, um, and Walter corrects him. And Walter corrects him. Yeah. Which yeah. is interesting, isn't it? And it almost seems as though it's the trump card and that Walter's going to win. Um, I thought that was very, very clever, the way that Ridley Scott does not show the winner emerge from their fight. Um, and obviously, if you've seen Prometheus, you know things, but... 
I thought that was very clever. I always love it in movies where they don't don't show, you know, they don't show the death of a character. So the audience is always wondering. I just think that's such a clever thing to do. Um, Anyway, I was talking about Ozymandias. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. And I'm like, is this what their new planet is going to be, basically? And what's interesting, I, I um, interviewed Benjamin Rigby and I looked at Ozymandias in the context of this film mm. and I thought it was a really interesting comment on the on filmmaking itself as an enterprise because my argument is, well, Ridley Scott, he's, I mean, he's about to meet his maker, he's very old, mm. and he's probably thinking reflectively about, you know, he's at the peak of his filmmaking career and to have a man like him giving me a movie we're talking about how like all great works of art get buried under sand by the sands of time i think it thought was quite interesting but also he talks about composing something so majestic that you can die happy you know he says to the guy pierce character yeah, yeah. i think do you dream of making something so majestic that you could die happy they're talking about um they're talking about wagner actually but yeah, yeah yeah yes exactly exactly anyway, yeah like, yeah that's all super interesting stuff it is interesting and i wonder if is that the is that the foolish nature of human humanity? I don't know. To just to ba- desire, yeah, to art yeah. and creation rather yeah. than and, life, and to think that you can create something and then die happy. I don't. Know, it's really interesting. Captain Daniels, played by um, Catherine Waterston, who I want to talk about, but you know, her dream is just building that log cabin. That she, yes, it's not the living that's important to her. It's just this creation, this image. How curious. Yeah. Um, anyway, Catherine yeah. Waterston, so great. Really sold this part, I think. I adore her and I really, you know, she's been doing more in the last few years and hope she gets to do even more. Um, but, you know, as this character who is in charge for the majority of the movie and who ultimately ultimately would have made the right decision, could kind of take her own and, and mark her independence on this crew was great. I mean, obviously, that's, you know, where the whole Ridley Sigourney Weaver character mm-hmm. comes from as well. But mm. what did you guys think of Catherine Waterston? Oh, yeah, I loved her. I thought she was great. I thought she brought a really naturalistic style of acting. Or mm. She was very, very believable. Yeah. And, like, when she loses her... It's, it's in the trailer when she, like, loses her shit. And she's like, we don't know what the fuck's out there. Yeah. Like, it's just... Yes, it's really, like... Yeah, I, f- I felt the sort of desperation in her voice in that moment. Yeah, um, yeah I thought she was great. Yeah, I think she's a really interesting physical presence because we were kind of used... I don't, maybe it's a, it's a fashion that's in the past now where we would get the Sigourney Weaver archetype now of particularly James Cameron is beloved of these really, really uh. s- physically strong presences. And so Catherine Waterston, I was like, well, this is kind of, this is really nice because she doesn't have that sort of face where you're you know, expecting you know, her to take off her spacesuit and there to be rippling muscles underneath. But she almost mm. has a face more suited to Victorian period drama or something like that. It's like, it's really expressive. She was great in this scene. I was a little disappointed that there was a bit of a nod to an earlier scene from Aliens that you, right. that um, happened toward the end of the film. So I was like, oh, come on, I think she deserves a bit, a bit more than this. Because um, I did feel like, well, we kind of know she's probably... We can kind of predict what's going to happen if we're familiar with the Alien franchise mm. to this point. So that kind of under, undermined it a bit for me. But I thought she did, did a fantastic job with what she was given. Yeah. And Billy Crudup as well. Yeah, he's great. I love him. And he's so... Same. He's so good and so good at being clever. But, you know, in this and in many other performances, and I just, you know, having seen Jackie so recently and in this, mm. he's so good 
at doing that sheepish grin <laughs> where he knows he's been wrong or he knows he's being an asshole or he knows he said the wrong thing, but he still sticks at it. Kind of unscrupulous, but he's he's just he's not very clever about it. I don't know. Anyway, there's just mm. something about his presence which is mm. so great. And what an interesting character, because this is this guy he's had the captainship thrust upon him, mm. um, and the crew don't particularly respect him that much beyond, you know, what they have to. Because of his faith, he Because says. of his faith, he, yeah. yes. Um, Which I think is a really interesting conundrum, but they, he just says it straight out. People yes. doubt my ability to make decisions because of my faith. I'm like, mm. mm, he could have he seen that in action. He could have shown me, don't tell me. Show there was tell. a little moment later where they're, they do refer to it a bit later in one of his yeah. decisions. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, you're right, they, they don't really explore that. And but so the ship has a calamity mm. just at the start of the film, and a few people die, and they want to sort of mourn their deaths, and he's like, no, we've got to keep on going. But then the crew mutiny and have a unsanctioned funeral. So they, in a display of faith and mm. and the stuff that they criticise him for. Anyway, I don't the, think it's faith. Faith, I think. No, it's but like a recognition of the importance of, of life. like right. you know yeah, yeah of life and of symbolic symbolism. I think the whole point of that is that I think this is, would be a very eminently rewatchable film because mm. I would love to rewatch it and get some of these positions more down. Films that go really in depth about you know philosophy and these types of things are super interesting to rewatch. Yeah, yeah and totally. to study you know as a whole kind of canon. So, yeah. Walter, seal all doors behind us. We'll bring it to us. Where is it, Walter? Closing on About a year ago, I interviewed Benjamin Rigby about being cast in Alien Covenant, and it was a pretty terrible interview, to be honest. Not, I was there too, though, I just want to and say. And the sound quality was pretty bad, but mainly he, the, bad, the bad thing about this interview was because he had signed a non-disclosure agreement and could only really talk in the very, 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 very vague terms about the, his experiences making the film at all. So uh, one of the things he did mention, though, was that he'd been put on a boot camp with other cast members. So I began my interview this time by asking him about that. Yeah, it went for about two weeks. Um, we rocked up on the first day and met Ridley and met all the rest of the cast and um, that was pretty overwhelming to begin with. And like, okay, you guys who are the security personnel on, on the Covenant, come this way. And we they're like, go to your trailer, get changed into your... We were told to bring um, exercise gear and comfortable exercise gear. And so we started like stunt training, just seeing kind of where our fitnesses were at and then... Um, yeah, started doing like CrossFit crazily, and then like all these army routines that they would normally do in the army. And the guy that was training us was in the New Zealand Army for a number of years, um, so he was pretty hardcore. But um, yeah, lots of circuit training, and you know, I lost so much weight in two weeks and put on like crazy amounts of muscle. It's crazy just what they can do in two weeks. And then there were periods where we're dismantling and putting back together like semi-automatic rifles and revolvers and, and all these things. So I can technically... They wanted us to, to look like we could actually fire the firearms. Even though I don't in the movie, I still have to do that. But, you know, there's nothing worse than watching a film, especially people who know how to use weaponry. Like, he's not holding it properly. Yeah. So I think it was mostly for that. And f so we could get the formations right. And a lot of the stuff they don't use in the film, but yeah, we, we had a pretty good grasp of it. Um, so did it feel like you were on a blockbuster when you were on set? Definitely. Um, I mean, I'm used to doing 
independent film and independent theatre here in Melbourne. So to go from that scale, which is little to no budget stuff, to, you know, I'd, I'd occasionally seen the TV template and how they do that. And even compared to the TV template, the, I mean, this had a budget of something like 150 million, I think. So to see the, the scale is nuts, which, which allowed Ridley to kind of construct proper sets and construct the whole world that we were living in, especially when we did um, like interior stuff at Fox Studios. That was just unbelievable. But just the scale of the set. Yeah, and just how intricately built it was. It, um, like you think uh, that's they're doing a really good job of pretending that those buttons are there and everything, but everything's done, like everything's there. Mm. So it allows, you know, Ridley's an actor's director. So he, I think him putting the time to create those things really enables the actors to not have to worry about pretending and you can just be and it, then you can play. All right. So how, do, how was it taking direction from him, him in your key scenes? Um, with my stuff, he kind of... During boot camp, I had to do a lot of makeup tests and stuff as well and he'd come in and, you know, there'd be days where I'd be waiting for like three hours for him to just approve of the makeup. Um, so like he really does oversee absolutely everything and they won't go forward until he's said yes so he'd come in in those bursts and he'd be like mm, you, I mean you look really sick but the rest is just up to your acting and when like Sir Ridley Scott tells you that you kind of shit your pants and you just go for it when you have to so one, one other thing that he did say was you know come to the table with fresh ideas come with a really strong character that you want to present to me and if it's bad we'll start all over um, we, but you know when you're dealing with a big budget film you don't want to fuck up and you know I think putting the fear of God into you really makes you do um, your best work yeah. So does Ledwood have a whole big backstory in your in your mind? Um, yeah, he did a bit. I, I really wanted to concentrate on him being... I When I read the script and saw how careless he is within the film, I essentially wanted to make that follow through in things that I... I really wanted to make it about his mouth because he smokes. I wanted him chewing gum, but someone else was chewing gum, so I didn't want to do that. When props originally came to me and they showed me what was in my pack, every like they actually put everything in the pack that you would take on an expedition. Um, they asked me for the first time in my life, um, is there anything else we can get for your character? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, really? Okay, so I said, can I get a, can I get a, like a toothpick or like a metal toothpick? And they got me a metal toothpick, like a space age kind of toothpick, which had a blunt end. So I like got a rock and I was like scraping it down. But then on first day of principal shooting, it fell out of my mouth in the very first shot. And I like caught it in my hand. I was like, no, nah, I'm, not, I'm not using that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I mean, that was one thing that, you know, he said, come to the table with some ideas. And I said, he's like, do you like that toothpick? I was like, yeah, I like it. He's like, okay, we can keep it in the film. But because I didn't work with me on the first day, I just didn't use it. Uh, in terms of backstory, I mean, he was. it was quite obvious that he was a bit of a dick from what he did. Just he's careless, he's cocky, and he's American. So I wanted to make him as jockey as possible. And, you know, there's parts where I spit and, you know, I'm smoking and I just, I, I'm glad that I smoked for years because there's nothing worse than watching someone on film who can't smoke. And I'm glad it came across that I could. Yeah, I think so, for sure. Um, because there's a lot of special effects in some of your scenes, like particularly, you know, the key yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How was it working with that? I mean, in my main med bay scene, a lot of that was prosthetics. So 
when I flew to Sydney originally, uh, back and forth from the start of last year, they'd make full moulds of my body, and I had like a full mould next to me of me, so a full replica in silicon of my body that they could essentially push shit through, and when I couldn't be used, they could use that. But all the convulsing and all that—that's all. That's all me. That's not special effects yeah. and. Um, like all the makeup's real and that back plate was like a five-hour prosthetic job for like three or four days in a row so my stuff was pretty real except when you see the alien they had like a puppet version of it but everything that you see of me was real for the most part right yeah and so when you first were brought into the film were you given just your scenes or the entire script i was given the entire script but we were only given it maybe three weeks before we started shooting i didn't have many lines to learn so i had a big moment that i kind of had to learn but you know that's what boot camp was for establishing those stunts and establishing what they needed a body double for they the body double had no body hair so i had to get like a full chest and back wax and and like they shaved my arms and everything which was very painful getting a chest wax um, I'm quite hairy, so <laughs> yeah, that was probably the hardest part of the entire shoot. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. So, is it difficult to stay focused given your experience, you know, working in these smaller, smaller projects where you might be more hands-on, in with with you know with such a huge mm-hmm. cast and crew? Or? I mean, it was kind of hard to because I'm so used to creating stuff for myself and working with other people and creating kind of the world out of that on a really on a real shoestring budget. So. For me to sit back and relax is a really hard thing. But, you know, after a few days of people bringing you water and coffees and, you know, doing whatever you like, it, it, it's pretty luxurious, really. So you just kind of have to learn to sit back and not be a diva about anything and just do your job. And, yeah, when you come, when you come to set, like I said, everything's created. So you just get to do your job, which is so amazing. And I felt really lucky to be able to do that. Was it difficult to negotiate um, the NDAs around it? Because you had to spend like a, a year or yeah, more. Yeah, it was, it was pretty nuts. They gave us a whole list before we did the premiere recently of what we could say about our characters and what we have. And it still isn't out in America, so there's still certain things that I think aren't allowed to be said. But, um, I mean, I think this podcast is out after anyway, yeah, so it's, it's fine. Yeah. Like, it's funny, I was packing up stuff in my room recently and they were like three scripts there that they'd given me throughout the course of filming watermarked with my name I'm like god I live in like some share house in the north side like someone could just break in and be like what's this and then I could be absolutely ruined so it's 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 pretty scary having that you know that level of confidentiality in your hands in your house like times three like it's yeah yeah and even during filming you'd be like I need to leave the script here in my trailer because no one can break in and like steal it because it's, it's a pretty pretty big deal there's a lot of fans around the Alien franchise so definitely yeah yeah. yeah. I mean signing that was like mm, okay I have to really actually agree to be doing this I could tell people that I was in the film I couldn't tell people what was in the film yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember because like you weren't able to tell me you went. I think you say you went to New Zealand and that was about it. Yeah. Or you went to Sydney and that was yeah. it. And, but, yeah, that was about what. I mean, there ago. was stuff that was leaked on the internet that I was like, well, it's on the internet, so I guess I can talk about it, like where it was filmed and who's in the cast and who's directing it. Yeah, yeah. Um. So has it been difficult to put put the work with Alien into your body of work because like I you know you had a bit of recognition on the streets after the ANZ ad. Yeah. There was a few smaller projects, the photography exhibitions, this sort of stuff. Yeah. Is it difficult to? It is a really odd step up. Like it did 
properly come out of nowhere. Um, I, I recently went to an uh, recently went to London and the, I met a casting agent and she was like, "So how did like how did you get here?" <laughs> I think she was kind of perplexed by that I'd done all these independent shows and short films and you know very small TV slots and then it just went alien and I'm still amazed by that. So. Um, it has been a weird transition because I don't get asked to do like short films and independent theatre or anything anymore because people just assume that I'm really busy but then on the other hand it's like going for these other really big projects that you're competing with the A-listers and B-listers and you know people that have names so it's a very weird step up but I'm sure I'll get used to it at some point (laughs) Um, what will we see you in next? Uh, I'm not sure I've been auditioning a bunch but um yeah, I'm, my managers in the States know that I'm pretty picky, so um, I want the next one to be good. But at the same time, I can't be too picky because I just need to work. Mm, so have there been roles you've turned down? No, there have been like short, a few short films and stuff that have come through and um, I've come close to a few big films, but no, nothing yet. Okay. But the film's just been released, so I think I'm talking to a friend who is doing quite well and she said, you know, like people haven't seen the work when I did this film, I didn't start working until people had seen me in it. So hopefully it works for me. Yeah. You never know. If, if I don't work again, I've still worked with Ridley Scott, so I can't complain. <laughs> Perfect. Um, cool. Can I get your top three films now? Oh, top three sci-fi space films? Yeah, or films sure. like set in another part of mm-hmm. yeah, off the Earth. Well, I guess I have to say Alien because it's conducted so much of my life over the past year and a half. Um, I rewatched it on a plane recently and it was still thrilling and exhilarating and Sigourney Weave is amazing so I have to put that there um, number two I'd say I'd say Another Earth I really like Brit Marling she's kind of the template of writer producer actor director that I'd really aspire to be like um, I remember first seeing this at MIF maybe 2000 and when was it like 13 or 14 13, I think yeah, I was at the screen and the sound of my voice was there as well and she's one of those actors that just went I'm gonna turn down a job out of Brown University with Goldman Sachs and then moved to LA to become an artist and then got sick of being cast as the horror blonde girl wrote two scripts one in the morning one in the evening every day for a year and then I think having a finance background maybe had the opportunity to get funding and they made them both in a year and they both premiered at Sundance so that that's just like the coolest story and but this film in particular I think in her writing style and I don't know if you agree with me but um, she focuses on the focal point is somewhere else and in this case it's another earth which is a replica of ours um, and it, it focuses so much on that which it kind of draws attention to the other earth that it makes us focus on the interaction that we have with each other on earth here and it's not revealed whether that's the other planet or not. It could just be doing the exact same thing at the same yeah, time and we don't yeah. know that until the end and we don't even know what happens at the end. Leaves it open-ended and I don't like being spoon-fed as an audience member either and I think she really does that in a beautiful way and a really poignant way. And she does it in like the OA as well, yes. which I think is quite special. Um, so yeah, I'd say Another Earth. It, it's one of those films that the acting probably isn't the best from some of the supporting characters, but the screenplay is just phenomenal and it says so much about 
you know what is out there yeah and it did it on you know really low budget did it really mm. simply it raised all these fascinating yeah. questions it was just yeah, it was, it was I think she made it on like 150 grand or something and it does not show no and then when she got a bigger budget for special effects like with the OA yeah. the big questions are still there and they're all kind of it's used so well yeah. like in services those questions and yeah it's one of those films that's just like utterly poignant but at the same time like you'll it, it makes you question the way that you interact with people and maybe that we should just be maybe more caring to one another um, and that always gets me mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and three I'd say Moon um, I rewatched this recently again and Sam Rockwell's so good um, and even drawing comparisons to like In Covenant um, like the, the man meeting his maker or the man meeting something that is so similar to him and him teaching him something, um, these this artificial intelligence, and that maybe they can, the artificial intelligence could take us over one day. Yeah, um, yeah. And that it is really close. We are making these androids and robots and stuff, and even computers that are smarter than us. Mm. So, um, yeah, I find that scary, and you know, but possible. Yeah, access really accessible. Definitely, yeah, and for a film to be carried on the shoulders of essentially one actor, it's pretty much totally. It's a rare, rare, rare thing. Yeah, uh, he's he's just so good. Mm. Uh, one of the actors on Covenant when we were filming, she, she was like, you know, that Sam's like they were talking like just candidly about Sam, you know, Sam Rockwell, and how he wasn't working at the moment and how he was looking for work. And I was like, if that guy's not working full time, there is something. Yeah, absolutely wrong in the world. Um, no, I just love him. I think he's great. That was Benjamin Rigby's top three favorite films set in space. Anders, what's your favorite film that's been set in space? Well, my I, I'm a real sucker for this kind of film, but uh, one that I've chosen to mention here is La Voyage de la Lune, George Méliès' 1902 film, which is widely hailed as a masterpiece of cinema and is well worth watching if you haven't. Um, it runs for about ten minutes, I think. The silent film's basic plot follows a professor and a bunch of astronauts as they take the titular trip to the moon. Um, its most famous image is of the man in the moon getting hit in the eye with this rocket of people. And that image really, I think, speaks to the film's very playful, creative sense of humour. It's very inventive. It sort of showcases a lot of spectacle filmmaking that was very sort of cutting edge at the time and still still is. It's quite amazing, really. But, um, yeah, so the use of special effects and technology and, and all that kind of stuff is really interesting. But also what makes it interesting is it's merging of this these concerns with the technological with like the sort of joyful spirit of invention that characterises early filmmaking. You know, it's just... It sort of like bleeds optimism. It's so fun to watch. A few copies of the film were colorized at the time of its release by a company in Paris. Over 200 people directly hand painted every single frame of the film, uh, which is quite extraordinary. And that version was restored a few years ago and it played at Cannes and did the circuit. Again, it's really joyful. It includes a fabulous soundtrack by the band Air. Um, so I really recommend tracking it down. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's a fun little piece yeah. of spectacle filmmaking yeah they're both on youtube um yeah i love that film it's so special and it's so evocative of what was wondrous at this time exactly in 1902 when when audiences saw it yeah yeah Mm. just the medium of film itself and then also the you know the subject matter the fantasy yeah Yeah, exactly dream yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. and what was yours um um barbarella 
uh, Roger Vadim's film from 1968 that was uh, re-released in 1977. So this is about, um, I'm sure everyone's familiar with the imagery, um, but a quick Google will, will reveal to you Jane Fonda in this, you know, excellent costume. Um, Jane Fonda, who plays a character, um, a woman on Earth, uh, who is a government agent in the 41st century, I think, who is out to save the world from a man and his gun, uh, from a man called Duran Durand and his uh, positronic ray, <laughs> it's called. <laughs> so this is you know kind of futuristic and a little bit absurd and ridiculous, shall we say. Uh, anyway, she's sent to a new planet, her ship crashes, she gets captured and tied up by people. In this film, within the, the fiction of the narrative, I think her appearance and her powers make her seem post-human almost, even though she is the human and everyone else on this other planet are the non-human characters. The thing I remember most about this film, because I mentioned this specific moment in an essay about machinic bodies, Doctor Who and Twin Peaks that I wrote as an undergrad, is the way that Earth people have sex. They've evolved apparently to this new way of having sex by taking something like an energy transference pill and then they put their hands together and, you know, um, I guess the sexual pleasure just generates within their bodies and then they leave. Anyway, it's ridiculous in the way it's depicted in the movie and it sounds ridiculous as well. The aliens have sex the regular way. The, the Earth people do it in this, like, very, you know, separated machinic form. But even so, it still manages to be, like, really psychedelic. Anyway, it's great fun. Cinematography by Claude Renoir, also, mm, interestingly. Cool. Anyway, I found out from Wikipedia today, as I was just reading about it, that it was the second highest grossing film of the year in 1968 really? in the oh, UK wow. after The Jungle Book, which is incredibly <laughs> surprising because it seems that whenever I mention it, everyone just absolutely hates it. It seems to be almost universally despised. But it's no secret that Jane Fonda at any and all ages is one of my favourite people. And so I am just destined to love this movie. But I think you should check it out. Yeah, I really liked it. I thought it was pretty lightweight and a bit too cheesy, maybe, but I was fairly young when I saw it. It's probably time to watch it again. Oh, yeah, it probably still is, but you know. <laughs> well, my um, choice is also a film from 1968, but it's um, at the other end of the fun spectrum, and that's 2001, <laughs> Space Odyssey, um, which I don't think we could really omit from a list like this. Uh, so wow. there's a lot of people have written a lot about it, about how it's still futuristic even now, um, you know, 30, 40 years after it's being released. Uh, 2001 is based on a short story by Arthur C. Clarke called The Sentinel, and um, like you argued in your review of Alien Covenant, Anders, it's also a film in which a, uh, hum, human characters are kind of seen as second fiddle to the exploration of philosophical questions about life. Um, watching it today, it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to fathom how little we've come since 1968, having watched like the just looking at the special effects that Doug, Douglas Trumbull managed to use um, and tie together with. Uh, Kubrick's vision where he has this stupendous sense of scale but he's also like really 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 focused on the minutiae so he kind of sets out to tell the story of humanity from its beginning to you know what he imagines its future is going to be and he does this in such a fascinating way where the human characters are really kind of there to interact more with the machine is how he's kind of seen to embody all of potential future AI with their um, foolproof um, and incapable of error um, this idea that they are foolproof and incapable of error and it's still kind of the benchmark in this area as well I think the um, sound design and the score is kind of helps you know just give this sense of um, the vastness of space are you guys fans? yeah uh, absolutely um, and 
I had seen it a couple of times, but then I saw it for the first time in a cinema at the Astor Theatre, and it was felt to me like I was watching a whole new movie because of the soundtrack. The soundtrack is really incredible and very central to its effectiveness, I think. And so I totally recommend it if the Astor plays it semi-regularly, yeah. don't they? Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, usually yeah. on 70mm they Yes, it. it's, yeah. it's quite a, an amazing experience. So I would totally recommend that. I remember I watched it. It was quite amazing, actually. I watched it at the Astor and then sort of mind-blown by this whole experience. And then I went out onto a tram and there was, like, these two teenagers sitting opposite me and they were just like complaining and bitching about they these seen people it as well? no no they oh, had it okay. but they were bitching and complaining about like someone their school teacher and like some people some people in their class i can't quite remember what the whole thing was but it was like this really really petty argument about school school politics and i just remembered like going from the vast space to that <laughs> it was quite it was quite extraordinary um how do you think it's held up i'm interested to find out how people think kubrick uses uh, represents humanity because it's a fairly I think it's held like up. It's, it's like it's often accused of being very cold, very masculine, yes. and quite white. Uh, and uh, mm. do you think that's a like a problem? Well, it is. It was. It I is guess it is a it problem. Is. I haven't yeah. heard many of those debates, but um, yeah. Mm. Well, Kubrick's often accused of coldness and mm. just being more interested in getting oh, the yes. perfect shot. Mm. Yeah, he is. He is, and, and it was you know true in the way that he directed as well. Um, but you know, I mean, he achieved a number of really stunning things. You know, with that in mind. I just want to point out, I think it's really interesting to compare Hal, who, you know, is this character who is pre- presented as, as someone who, who has it out for the humans, but, you know, he's really just trying to survive himself, and so it's his story of, you know, survival at all, all, at all costs, basically. But to compare Hal to Gertie, the computer system in, in Moon as well, yeah. um, and to compare the way that those two, you know, <laughs> systems kind of relate to each other, um, or compare in these very different movies, but mm. you know, equally philosophical films about outer space or you know, yep. not Earth. Well, thank you very much for making, to, making it to the end of, of episode 26 of Cultural Capital. If you want to rate or review us on iTunes, we'd be very grateful. Um, and you can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. Um, you can find me at Andy Ricky. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Anders Furs. And I'm at Eloise Low Ross. Thank you very much, and you'll hear from us again soon.